please remain standing and pray with me. Merciful God, we thank you for bringing all of us from all the different places that we've come this morning, both in in heart and location. God, you've brought us here to encounter you. Lord, would you be present by your spirit? Lord, would you be present in my speech? Lord, would you make me humble? Lord, would you be present uh, in the ears of your people? Would you make them humble this morning? And God, would you change us today? God, help us to follow you, to trust you, to believe in you, and bring the ministry of reconciliation that you brought to us by your mercy. God, would you help us to bring that to the world? We thank you, God, for this day and this opportunity. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You might be seated. This morning, we continue our summer study of Christian anthropology. Yeah, there we go. What does it mean to be human? John Calvin famously began his 1,800-page Institutes of the Christian Religion with a twofold focus. His first design in writing was simply to know God, or theology, in connection with and subservient to the knowledge of God, Calvin's second purpose for writing was the knowledge of ourselves, anthropology. So if the knowledge of God is the highest human pursuit, a close second is the knowledge of ourselves. We will never begin to perceive the countless excellencies of God We will never begin to perceive the countless excellencies of an infinitely lesser thing, humanity. Theology and anthropology go together. Our fractured relationship with God is evidenced by our broken human relationships. So in Christ, our restored relationship with God should be evidenced by our restored relationships with God one another, right? Love God and love neighbor. Know God and know your neighbor. So this summer has been mostly about the second part of God's restoration project, his redemption of what it means to be human, to love and to know our neighbor, even to know ourselves more fully. So as as you have no doubt experienced, listening to sermons about anthropology is a difficult task. It's difficult. Writing sermons about anthropology takes a lot out of you. We, all of us are exhausted here, but we will never exhaust the infinite complexity of knowing God or of knowing ourselves, of knowing about humanity. So, Uh, Because we must never stop contemplating God, we should never stop contemplating ourselves and humanity and anthropology. But take heart, this sermon series is almost over. It is almost over. So, we've already considered various aspects of what it means to be human. Both God's creative intentions for humanity and our present broken and sinful condition or our experience of his creation. You can read history books or watch the evening news 
or consider your own thoughts in your own head, we are all ruined by sin. This is where we are at present. The human race is not at peace. So this morning, we turn our attention to yet another aspect of human anthropology. Racial, ethnic, social diversity. Now, first, I want to define my terms, okay? I want to be careful of how I speak this morning. Race refers primarily to physical difference. Ethnicity refers to cultural difference. Social refers to anything else, any other characteristic of a group of people, whether that be gender, religion, economics, you could go on and on and on. Now, even in defining these terms, I am sure that many of us hear all of these definitions and categories like fingernails on a chalkboard. Diversity language sounds like division to our ear. We live in a cultural moment that is afraid of difference. Either we want to eliminate all distinctions. I don't see gender. I don't see race. Or we separate ourselves from difference. Both the doctrine of eliminating distinctions, equality and sameness for all, and the doctrine of separation, separation separate but equal. Both of these options miss the mark. But our reality remains. Racial, ethnic, and social division is our history and our present. Now, unlike enslaved antebellum Africans or segregated African Americans, or Irish immigrants, German Jews, post-war Japanese, apartheid black South Africans, Christian North Koreans, and Nigerians, most days of my life, I have woken up without a single thought devoted to the color of my skin or my ethnic identity. Among the many issues that I have faced in my life, Waking up with a constant background noise of fear has not been one of them. So what is God doing? What is he doing? Now, to answer this question, and this might be kind of a joke to some of you in the room, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. We have to go back to the beginning. Uh, Stories, and, and specifically the Christian story, is how we interpret our experience. I was at the dinner table the other day with my wife and some of her coworkers, and they were all talking about various stories, TV shows, stories at work, and they interpreted all of their life through the narrative of the show that they were watching at the moment. We all do this. We do this consciously, and we do this unconsciously, and so we need to hear the story over and over again. So what is the story of diversity? In the beginning, God created difference. Heaven and earth, day and night, waters and land, male and female. You cannot even put pen to page without diversity. The contrast of black and white, light and dark, ones and zeros on hard drives. The three in one creator of the universe, Yahweh, God, is reflected everywhere. 
biodiversity reflects the Holy Trinity. Pencil drawings declare the glory of God. So God created mankind from the dust. White sand, red dirt, black soil. He created mankind in his image from the diversity of dust. Red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. The most fertile black soil and the brightest beach. The tri-unity of God reflected in the beautiful diversity of his creation. But diversity quickly became division. Adam versus Eve. Cain versus Abel. Ishmael versus Isaac. Man versus God. Human beings rejected Yahweh God, who holds all of this diversity together. We traded the colorful diversity of the garden for a monotone wilderness. The Tower of Babel was mankind's pursuit of unity without humility. Humility before God and before each other. Power and pride cannot reconcile, and this is the rest of the story of humanity. Tribes, tongues, and nations, wars and rumors of wars, even mission trips, all aimed at reuniting humanity under my singular racial, ethnic, or social identity. So God chose an ever-expanding group of people to be a light in the darkness. Abraham's family became Jacob's 12 tribes, which then became a nation, which then became the church universal. But Abraham and his sons, all Israel, and the people of God forgot that this little nation, this singular city on a hill, was to be a light for the nations. A place and a people to restore the whole world in humble worship under the God of heaven. So along with the rest of humanity, Israel was more concerned with ethnic purity than worship of God. They devoted themselves to the purity of bloodlines rather than purity of heart. The outward signs of God's covenant love became their salvation. Whitewashed tombs on the outside while inside a child of hell, to use the words of Jesus. So, the prophets cried out, Stop selling the needy for a pair of sandals. Stop trampling the head of the poor into the dust. You tell the foreigner, Yahweh will surely separate you from us. You mock the childless, calling them a dry tree. You confess ethnic superiority. You hope in circumcision and not in the Lord. Repent and believe the good news. Only the strong arm of Yahweh can bring salvation. You are nothing without him. You hope for justice apart from him, and there is none. Come back. Return to the Lord. But they would not repent. The history of division continued. The Maccabees revolted. Roman mathematician Ptolemy wrote that the Jews were in the status of slaves. Those who object to the slave tax are to be taken by force and put to death. 
branded on their bodies with the ivy leaf symbol of Dionysus. Like the hanging gardens of Babylon, the Greek Parthenon, the Great Wall of China, Egypt's pyramids, America's White House, the Roman Empire was built with slave labor. In the first century, the city of Rome had more slaves than free citizens. African-American theologian Jarvis Williams writes, In general, hatred between Jews and Gentiles was fierce and reciprocal in the ancient world. In many respects, it was more vitriolic than the hatred that African-Americans and Caucasians have expressed toward one another in America since the days of slavery. In 1859, the 25-year-old outspoken abolitionist, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, was invited to preach in America. North Carolinians responded, and I quote, We would like a good opportunity at this hypocritical preacher. The weekly Raleigh Register reported that anyone selling Spurgeon sermons should be arrested and charged with circulating incendiary publications. Fast forward 104 years, the Reverend Martin King wrote to his dear fellow clergyman from his jail cell in Birmingham, Alabama. He writes this, Perhaps it is easy for those of you who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that she has just seen advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she's told that Funtown is closed to colored children, and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky, and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. Fast forward 30 years, 1993, when blacks and whites were still violently segregated in apartheid South Africa. Fast forward still 20 more years to the present. Religious and ethnic mass murder still ravages countless nations. And fathers and mothers living in our neighborhoods still have conversations with their sons and daughters about how to behave with colored skin. Now, there's a lot of talk today about implicit racial bias or unconscious gender discrimination, precognitive societal plagues that infect the mind. Our racial, ethnic, and social divisions are much deeper than that. They are much deeper than that. Wars... Demonstrations, legislation, and negotiations all have their place, but a powerful majority cannot restore and reconcile this story. Why did God create diversity and difference? More than that, why would God allow diversity to become division? C.S. Lewis 
wrote this in his book, Miracles. God is not merely mending what was broken. Not simply restoring a status quo. Redeemed humanity is to be something more glorious than unfallen humanity. Hear these words from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 60. The wealth of all nations will one day gather together. The camels of Midian and Ephath. The gold and frankincense of Sheba. They will bring good news. They will bring gospel. The flocks of Kedar, the rams of Nebaioth, the glories of every ethnicity will beautify my beautiful house, declares the Lord. The ships of Tarshish, foreigners will bring their silver and gold. Yahweh, the Lord, will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The Lord Jesus entered into human history. He entered into this Isianic vision of future diverse glory, more glorious than the garden, more diverse than the most colorful imagination. He entered into the homes of Pharisees, Roman centurions and rulers, tax collectors, prostitutes, Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, small town Nazareth, big city Jerusalem, He touched the unclean, the withered. He ate with the despised, with slaves, with slave masters, with women, with men. At every meal, with every encounter, Jesus brought the good news of Isaiah with no partiality. In Christ, in him, all things hold together. Only Christ can unite a multi-ethnic people at Pentecost. Only in Christ would Peter preach forgiveness to the powers that just crucified Jesus. Only in Christ would Philip bring the good news to an Ethiopian eunuch. Only in Christ would Peter sit and eat with the Italian Gentile Cornelius. Only in Christ would Paul eat with Lydia, the Philippian jailer, Jason, Prissa, and Aquila... Titius Justice, the Maltese, the Roman Jews, disciples in Tyre, the brethren in Ptolemus, Philip in Caesarea, Manasseh the Cypriot in Caesarea, and the brethren in Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul wrote this, I have become all things to all people, so that I might in every way save some. Only in Christ could a small Jewish sect of around 100 people peacefully dismantle the slave economy of the Roman Empire in less than 400 years. So what does the gospel have to do with racial reconciliation? Everything. Everything. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, Gentiles. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel 
and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that we might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. By the blood that flowed from his murdered body, Jesus destroys the division. Jesus abolishes the dividing wall of hostility. He kills the hostility. Paul uses violent Warlike language to describe the hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles and the peace that Jesus achieved for them. Here, Jarvis Williams again. Paul does not state here that Jesus' death hypothetically achieved or can possibly assist in the endeavor of reconciliation. Instead, he emphatically states that Jesus' death has accomplished it for the believing community of faith. So, this gospel story, the good news from the beginning of creation, is that God himself must pick up the pieces of our shattered diversity. Racially, ethnically, politically, socially, humanity is broken into millions of beautiful pieces that only God can mold together into a colorful stained glass window. So what? My favorite question. So what? How are we supposed to participate in this ministry of racial, ethnic, and social reconciliation? Why do all these anthropology sermons feel so political? Whether you are dispositionally progressive or conservative, we believe, all of us together, the lie that every single issue is merely a political issue. Here's your false choice. Either racism is destroying America, or racism is a fringe reality, a systemic myth propagated by the liberal media. Either you are on the right side of history or you revise it. Choose this day whom you will vote for. No. Let me just say that. No. Here is the reality. Racial reconciliation is a political issue. Racial reconciliation is a personal issue. If conservatives are tempted to believe the lie that racism is a thing of the past, then progressives believe the lie that a vote against Trump equals a vote against bigotry. 
If progressives put too much faith in the strong arm of government, then conservatives deny the strong arm of the Lord in destroying systemic racism in our day. Our deepest human divisions are physical and spiritual. They're individual and political. They're personal and systemic. The ballot box cannot destroy the hostility. Now, this is a very important sentence. Politics matters. But Christ is king of the church, not the head of state. So, what is my part in all of this? Here's my one point of application. Take the first step. Take the first step. Jesus said this, Go your way. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking that they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Your part is simple. Go your way. Be not proud of race, face, place, or grace, as Charles Spurgeon said. Humble yourself before every single person, especially your greatest enemy. Enter into the stories, the lives, the homes of outsiders and receive their hospitality. Eat with your enemies and shut your mouth. Political, racial, ethnic, economic, whatever makes your skin crawl, whoever yells the loudest, go to them with the assumption that they are a son of peace. Most people in most places will welcome you into their lives if you come with the humility of Jesus. But like Jesus, some of you will die. But you must go. The greater the difference, the greater the challenge of reconciliation. Husband and wife. If you don't know that those people are different then you got something coming to you if you're not married yet. Father and son, male and female, black and white, Muslim and Christian, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, creator and creature, God and man. Reconciliation is not easy and it takes time, but neither can we wait and sit idly by while another human being, another group of image bearers is trampled underfoot. So we have to take the first step. Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house today. Go and impose upon the outsider's hospitality. Assume the best of every man, especially the person with a different skin color, ethnic heritage, political party, born in a different time and place from you. The gospel requires us to risk being taken advantage of to feel uncomfortable, even to die. Take the first step. You don't have to go to Africa. It can be as simple as sitting on your neighbor's front porch, shutting your mouth and listening, next door or on the bad side of town. 
Reconciliation can be as simple as confessing your sin, humbling yourself before God, and then having a conversation with your ever-distant spouse, your estranged son, your Muslim co-worker. Start with that person at church who you've been meaning to get to know, but you've been too busy or too afraid to ask. If your calendar is so full that you cannot find time for a friend, let alone an outsider, then maybe we need to rethink our systemic insistence on busyness. Something as innocuous as a full calendar can be a systemic hindrance to racial reconciliation. So start with your literal, physical neighbor who might look just like you. I'm lowering the bar really low, y'all. <laughs> Start at a soup kitchen or the food pantry or Compassion International. Start by not posting stupid, divisive political commentary on Facebook. Amen. <laughs> Repent of your anger towards your outsider. Whether a Trump voter or an atheist Episcopal bishop. When you go, not if you go, when you go, when you serve, you are receiving the hospitality of Christ. You are not the Christ. You do not give out of the abundance of your resources. You don't have to have a perfectly crafted cross-cultural gospel presentation memorized. Go, eat, listen, and do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. So we need to take the first step. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?